Tech Sounds presents EduTrends. Welcome to the EduTrends podcast and webcast brought to you by the Institute for the Future of Education of Tecnológico de Monterrey. I'm Jose Pepe Escamilla. Uh, IFE Associate Director. Today's episode guest is Roberta Mali-Bassett, Global Lead for Tertiary Education and Senior Education Specialist at the World Bank. It's a pleasure to have you here, Roberta. Thank you, Pepe. It's really my pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I look forward to our conversation. Great. Uh, first of all, I would like to ask you to tell us about your work at the World Bank. Sure, I'm happy to. So uh, I have two streams of work in my my dual roles at the World Bank. I am the global lead for tertiary education and um, along with Nina Arnold, we sort of coordinate the global um, portfolio of the World Bank's work in tertiary education. And that includes supporting all that are working in higher education around the world uh, on their technical needs, advising, providing peer review, uh, things like that. But it's also monitoring the portfolio so that we have a clear um, information base to share with the world in conversations like this one about the scope and the, the concepts and the um, the impact of the World Bank's work in tertiary education around the world. And then we also, uh, it, as a global lead, I do a lot of analytical work to also uh, provide the intellectual sort of data-driven, evidence-based information that's needed for us to have our projects be fully informed by what is known uh, in the world of research, what academics are doing, but also what the data is telling us. So that's one stream of my work, but I also lead projects. Uh, I'm also um, a member of the Africa education team in particular. So I lead projects in East and Southern Africa, including the African Centers of Excellence Initiative in East and Southern Africa and several bilateral projects. So I have two streams of, of work, some that is sort of umbrella global work and some that actually keeps me grounded in the field so that I'm still deeply involved in the operational work of the bank as well. Thank you, Roberta. So I understand that part of your work is around financial sustainability. So I will ask you, uh, uh, what's uh, what we have learned our higher education institutions in developing countries, how they can achieve financial sustainability? Yes. I think this is, if not the most important question facing our institutions, it's one of the most important. I mean, we talk about some of the big three issues that institutions manage on a regular basis. One is effective governance. Two is, you know, the importance of recognizing quality, uh, internal institutional quality, as well as system level quality assurance. And then the third is effective financing. And so I think, you know, then we have all of the additional issues, equity, right, climate, um, climate uh, recognition and climate attention and things like this. But for the management of an institution, financing is definitely one of the core concerns. And you know, financial sustainability isn't just a challenge for developing country institutions, it's a challenge for institutions around the world. And so there are lessons that can be learned, right, from what has happened uh, at institutions that maybe have a little bit longer histories of financial um, diversification, right, where there is more financial streams coming into the institution than tuition or government expenditures. That's one of the, the ways that we support our, our clients in looking at what their options are. Um, what else is out there? What has been tried in their country context? What kind of options do they have? I think that the big conversation right now is, is twofold. One is uh, working with governments to make their spending more efficient. 
uh, and and more relevant to government spending and having institutions be uh, both more autonomous in how they can spend that money, but more accountable as well. So that balance between accountability and autonomy is a conversation that's having having more and more happening more and more globally. Um, but also this uh, question of private, how much private funding is coming into the institutions, both in terms of the private family level spending, but also public-private partnerships, how much can be utilized from the private sector in terms of contracting, either that's you know, courses being paid for, you know, uh, provided by private providers onto the uh, public campuses, or you know, down to things like who owns the youth hostels and the dormitories, who does the landscaping, who does, you know, some, some of that can be privatized so the costs are removed um, from, from different coffers, right? And so that's sort of looking at what are the options for uh, making spending more efficient. Uh, I think that is a, that's maybe the more challenging part. In many parts of the world, private is very difficult to uh, sort of bring into public higher education in any form of private. In some places it's private spending, we, you know, it's meant to be free, it's constitutionally free. And so how do you then, right, create institutions that still are quite solvent in an environment where um, the pressures through massification and other sort of forms of expanded delivery still have a very restricted financial base. Some things can be done in terms of using the campus more efficiently. I used to run summer session at Stanford University and summer session at Stanford was a time that was about revenue generation and really doing things that were entrepreneurial and innovative to create some extra revenues for the institution. There's a lot of that conferences and you know, elements of the institution that can be um, almost exported to a larger market besides the natural traditional market of the institution. So it is about some entrepreneurial thinking. We do talk a lot, uh, not we at the bank, but I think the global community of higher education speaks a lot about uh, innovation and intellectual property and you know, some of the great examples like Stanford that have made you know, billions of dollars over pat on patents and things like this. But this is not... I, I, something that we could say every institution is, is going to achieve, should aspire to achieve. It's not part of their mission and it certainly isn't part of a normal operating budget environment. So it is a, you know, a blue sky thing and maybe some schools will get lucky, but I think that's something that we, we know we recognize people care about, but isn't something that we actually talk a lot about as having a realistic impact on financial sustainability at the institutional level. That was a very tour tour of the field sort of answer to your question. I don't know if you want to narrow it down into some more specific yes. issues, but that's the broadest interpretation of the question, I think. Yeah, great. I, 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 um, I think there's a lot to unpack on, on what you said, but I, I, I was thinking about this uh, entrepreneurial thinking that we need in universities. And uh, there's like a, I don't know how to say that, an impedance mismatch with uh, what the university is, uh, that normally it's, created to maintain the status quo and entrepreneurship uh, it's uh, about changing pivoting uh, taking uh, opportunities that are there uh, so i was wondering if you have some uh, ideas or advice or learnings of how can a university that is a traditional university run traditionally introduce this entrepreneurial thinking to mm. achieve a better financial sustainability in all these aspects that you just said Mm. 
Well, a lot of it depends on the culture, right? What is the culture? I was in Finland a few years ago and, and you know, the Finnish institutions, which are traditional in their sort of histories, are very non-traditional in sort of their relationship with their students and the relationships of their students and their faculty to this external world, this external sort of marketplace of ideas and information. And so you know, one of the big takeaways from that was the amount of energy and support and strength that's given to students to be entrepreneurial, to be sort of innovative and creative and, and sort of thinking outside the box as they learn, but also as they do extracurriculars, creates an environment actually that sort of ripples across. It allows the institution to think more entrepreneurially, allows academic staff to think more entrepreneurially as well. It gives room for this type of ideas to breathe uh, which I think is really important. I think you're right. There are institutions around the world, and I think Latin America, uh, which you know where you are based, but also which has maybe the deepest sort of uh, history around these questions of the relationship of the institution to society. And you know, there's such a wonderful, deep, rich history that's quite challenging in that context. So, in your context, in the context, I have very good friends who teach across uh, you know, Brazil and Mexico and Colombia the dialogue is so different because it is about still demanding from the government what the government is meant to provide, but also living sort of in this global knowledge economy that is where your students are going to go, right? And how you balance off that relationship between uh, making sure that expectations are met where they are meant to be met, but also innovating still and not losing pieces of either because of that balance being, being so challenging in that space. In other places in the US, and I talked about Stanford, but it's because it's an institution I know so well. Um, it's very normal, this idea that the, the, the institutions exist in a marketplace amongst each other, but also for their labor of the graduates, for the ideas of their faculty, that whole ecosystem around innovation is so normal now. It has been for maybe 50 years or so. So, you know, some of it is just about catching up. Some of it is learning to see, you know, what your, what your ecosystem supports right now and maybe how that can be made to be more dynamic through dialogue with leaders of the, you know, the banking system, the taxation system, the labor market, all of those elements, right? Not every country has venture capital or all of these really important fiscal uh, drivers for innovation, but they can still be part of a conversation. And we're doing a lot of that in Africa where we, we do foster relationships between innovation hubs in Scandinavia and Europe and um, US, Canada to support changing that ecosystem in the countries where we work because there's, it's an iterative process that takes a while. Um, but the thinking does start with youth, it starts with students, it starts with you know, changing the way students relate to their faculty, to their ideas of what they can do when they finish the, their degrees, et cetera. Thank you. Thank you for, for the answer. So uh, culture is very important. And uh, uh, one of the means to uh, start that culture is embracing the entrepreneurship programs for students that could have uh, some uh, repercussions uh, in the culture of the university eventually. And, uh, and, I, uh, and I agree with you that uh, in, in Latin America, public universities has this uh, more government-based uh, sustainability model than uh, than in other parts of, of the world but i think that uh, fi financing is come is is being uh, mm -hmm. more and more mm -hmm. sparse and there are more things pressuring the governments to invest in uh, retirement health uh, and other sure. areas not only yeah. in education so 
I believe that these questions are important uh, for everyone, not only for private universities now in Latin America, but also for public universities. Absolutely, maybe more important for public institutions. You know, and it is the question we talked about this a bit before. But one of the things the World Bank is talking about a lot is institutional diversification. You know, in systems that have relied and very consistently invested most heavily in research universities, there are lower cost, high quality ways to deliver mass higher education that isn't at a research university. I think, I know you know that very well, but I think that, that part of that conversation about efficient spending, effective spending, relevant spending is about, well, what else can be done uh, to deliver high quality education, not to affect the quality of the education at all, but to the larger expanding body of students. It can't happen with the same replication of expensive research university environments. They just, there isn't the financing for it. It doesn't exist, but there are models and they exist, especially in the US, but in other places as well that do give examples of ways to deliver to more students at high quality for lower cost. And I think that's something more countries will need to be looking into in the future. Thank you, Roberta. So uh, during the uh, COVID crisis, I don't know if we're still in the COVID crisis, but yeah. uh, it has a lesson during the last uh, months. Uh, we have seen a lot of investment in, in technology, particularly in educational technology, technology for learning, teaching learning. So what's, uh, what, why could it be uh, important or not uh, to invest in technology, services, uh, learning uh, in universities? Mm. I think this was a massive question that emerged during COVID because, and maybe you're familiar with this, your audience may be as well. Prior to COVID, we actually were trying to pull back a little from the conversation about this massive investment in technology because it was taking funds away from more bread and butter issues that we thought maybe still needed more focus, a stronger focus on institution-based quality, improving teaching, right? Things that we seemed sort of separate from technology, which nothing is separate from technology anymore. And so that is the big, that's the big shift that COVID wrought, which is to say, no matter what you thought was going to be the focus, technology is part of all of that now. And I think that's uh, in the short term that has had, uh, you know, the digital divide has maybe been something spoken about more than enough in this period, but there has been some expanded uh, inequities that have been driven by technological innovations that were affordable and available in certain places that weren't in others that were available for certain people and weren't for other people. And it's most important today and in this immediate sort of not quite post, but almost post COVID crisis that that research get done, that every country, every institution know who was lost, who was supported best, what were the impacts because um, that's where the interventions are going to have to happen. They're going to have to happen in a way that closes that that gap. And so that will be first order. I think the first order is going to be who got lost uh, at the institution level from this investment and focus on technology. And then the next is going to be what are the most efficient ways to spend on what, what can give the most immediate returns, which I think would be teaching at this point. I think it would be about, you know, how do you deliver uh, in a resilient system, right? The one that will be able to withstand shocks in the future. They may not be pandemic related, but they certainly could be environmental or, um, you know, civil wars, any kind of disruptions. You see all sorts of forms of disruption and now institutions should be more equipped to manage those through technology. But what has, what was missing and filling those gaps? And then where can it be most readily applied in the short term? 
uh, and then medium and long-term. Medium and long-term, I think we're looking at something more along the lines of this massive amount of blended learning, this massive amount of improved research capacity through technology, collaborations, you know, cross-border collaborations through um, you know, major research initiatives, things that research universities do incredibly well. Technology will foster so much of that. I also think that post-secondary um, technical education, you know, technical vocational education that happens in the post-secondary uh, period of learning really needs to look at how technology can be used to bridge um, disruptions because we saw you know, all of these technical fields that are very hands-on had the hardest time managing the disruptions of the pandemic. You know, that also includes medical and, you know, dental, veterinary sciences, all of these things where the training is very hands-on and requires sort of lab spaces and um, technology can be used, but it's really expensive. It's very um, infrastructure intensive. And so that's more of a long-term investment. I think that's going to be happening, you know, in the next sort of 10 to 20 years. The cross-border delivery of courses, I think, is something that's going to stay and, and get bigger. Partnerships with providers of you know, major MOOC-type uh, courses, but ones that can be, I think, more bespoke to the institution's needs. You know, there was a lot of absorption of what was the market offering and can we get it for free and you know, things that completely made sense at the time. Um, but it also put institutions on the back foot, I think, in, in being able to drive what they needed, drive that negotiation to make sure that what they got was appropriate for their institution, their, their students, their course and their curriculum. That's going to be the correction that will happen. Now institutions need to be a little bit more forward leaning into that relationship with those external providers of courses, take what they need, make sure that they get a good deal for that, make sure it's right for their students and their staff and their programs that they deliver and make sure that the quality assurance environment you know, allows for those types of uh, programs to be accredited in a way that their degrees have validity on the ground. I think that's something that was really missing as well. You know, there's a lot of conversations happening now with all of these courses that actually hadn't been um, vetted within the quality assurance environment at the institutional or systems level. And that retroactive retroactively has to happen or it has to happen immediately to allow for these things to have sustained value. Right. Again, long answer. I'm sorry. I love these conversations though. So <laughs> yeah. a, a, a great answer. So I, I agree with you that in the short term, uh, teaching learning and enhancing teaching learning with uh, technology, it's a, a great idea. I think it's a, a way to have uh, some wins uh, for the organization giving more flexibility to students that are mm -hmm. around uh, the university, because if you do uh, online for uh, students that are not around the university, you need to also have other services uh, to offer to them right. uh, online. That is not only the, the teaching learning part, it's all of the other services of the university. Mm -hmm. Equally for blended learning, uh, blended learning for students that are around the university is relatively easy. But if you do that for students that are far away, that have to commute uh, for a, a lot of kilometers or miles, uh, it will, it's going to be more more difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I, I agree with you. Uh, but there's the other side of uh, the investment of the coin is uh, if we're talking about investing in universities on this, but about the access of uh, students, because uh, also what uh, the pandemic reminds us is the the uh, lack of access to internet, to an equipment mm -hmm. for the students. So there is uh, also a, a problem to solve there. I completely agree. And I, I think that's where 
the first order idea that I have for this period and this, this question is institutions really have to take stock of what happened. And I think there is still a slow uptake in that and really sort of assessing things, not just sort of reacting, constantly reacting. We're still, I think, in, in a lot of the world still reacting you know, cleaning up the mess, cleaning up, trying to get things back to normal. Everything is really moving towards back to normal. But um, who was lost? And in that process, how do we not lose them again? How do we make sure we get them back? I think there was a lot of creativity. You know, we talked about um, uh, internally where we saw really interesting things happening where you know, they would use high schools or they would use elementary schools that were wired in because homes weren't wired in in certain parts of our client countries around the world. It was very well known, right? What other ways, what other means for delivery besides an immediate, simple, what we're doing right now, which is so easy for us because we have the infrastructure. But for many, many students, as soon as they left their cities, not just their campus, maybe an urban environment, but left the urban environment in countries with internet penetration of 30, 40, 50%, half the country doesn't have internet. It's impossible. What else could be done? You know, in some places, it was uh, negotiating with mobile carriers uh, to an, allow for um, you know low cost or free delivery through mobile provision. In other places, it was buses with mobile networks driving into towns and saying you have four hours to do a big data dump from your institution, and every student shows up and does that. Whatever that the answer was, that's where the research has to happen. We really want to know those stories and what worked and um, what kind of creativity was involved because that will give us all of us, you, me, all of us who study these issues for a living and hope to create effective policy around what we learn, um, the evidence that we need for a, a litany, you know, a menu of options that can exist for institutions to intervene today, tomorrow, and then thinking about you know, when you have perfect infrastructure, what could you then do with a sort of a more global uh, mobile delivery of higher education? But Really, it's about doing that in, in a, a nicely stepped order that allows for it to be informed and thoughtful and reasonable to the environment where this is taking place because it's different everywhere. Mm -hmm. So lo looking for um, being an entrepreneur in that, uh, in that area also and looking at ways of uh, reaching the students and uh, giving access to them, partnering with different people, government, private sector. Mm -hmm. So there is no uh, no clear answer there. We need to do more, more research to find what are the different models that could be implemented more massively. Is my understanding? Mm -hmm. uh, yes, I also, I mean, I say this a lot, but I think the smartest people you'll find in any environment really are people at institutions, at universities, at colleges. They are just so smart and creative. I think there is a, there's a external wish to see them as sort of these monolithic, unmoving, conservative places. But so much of what is driving the global innovations in every field is emerging from institutions, universities, right? So allowing them, and I think COVID did give this, uh, give this moment for creative responses to a huge challenge. Universities led that challenge ex extremely well uh, around the world. You know, it wasn't necessarily um, universally amazing, but every place was trying really hard and many institutions did an extremely good job. And so for us who want to then take those stories and, uh, and apply them to sort of larger lessons that the global space can learn from, um, you know, that's where we need each institutions to tell us their stories and, and take the, do the research that they're so great at doing, but do it on themselves on that experience. And some, some will want to do that and others won't, but it will benefit all of us the more we get 
from that uh, from that experience. Thank you, thank you, Roberta. So I I'm, um, I, I want to change uh, now the the, the subject to lifelong learning. Um, mm. but I, I believe that uh, lifelong learning uh, will become as important as uh, or more as higher education in the future. So people will have to. Uh, train themselves uh, to uh, have uh, better job opportunities and, and retrain themselves uh, more frequently. And in uh, universities, we have a, a continuing, uh, continuous education area that is uh, like most of the time regarded inside the universities as a second class thing inside mm -hmm. compared to four degree uh, education. So I, I wanted to ask you, uh, what do you think about uh, lifelong learning opportunities developed by universities in the future and uh, and what universities can offer compared to uh, private providers like uh, the Coursera's boot camps, mm -hmm. uh, local uh, startups or businesses that offer these kind of opportunities that are not necessarily for degree. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, first, I completely agree with you. I think lifelong learning is uh, not just something that is going to be required, but it's something we should aspire. We should aspire to as societies around the world to give every person an opportunity to find their learning path and that that learning path is for their entire lives. I think that's an ambitious and important goal that every country should have because we're seeing the, the repercussions, I think, of some of the challenges around the changing information landscape right and and people's ability to have critical assessments of the information that's coming at them uh, and how to make sense of all of the the social media information sources all of these things actually can be improved by just moments of learning of learning how information is fed learning how they process information right so every human benefits from these opportunities to go back and just take some time and, and learn something different, take themselves out of their day-to-day -day life and, and invest in something else. So most of that will be around skills and jobs. And I think that's an important, uh, an important environment for all of us who work in education to be talking about. Skills and jobs is one of those things institutions I think don't like talking about. I have met many countries where university leaders especially are resistant to conversations around responsibilities for training skilled graduates and, um, I often ask them just to flip that conversation and, and talk about the fact that they are skilling their graduates, right? They are, we know that they are. They can put the narrative much more front and center and say, we're skilling you through these media, which is English literature or political science or whatever it is. Instead of saying, I'm gonna make you politically science aware, but when you're doing that, you'll get these skills down here. You can flip the narrative and still talk about skills first because then, Everyone understands what's the point of the education. And I think that is something that they can do for lifelong learning as well. We can provide you these skills. You're 40, you're 50, you're 70, whatever it is. These are the skills that this learning environment provides and it's going to be relevant for you as you go about your, you know, you know, Jamil Salmi has a presentation and he's been talking about it for a long time, but there's a lot of data saying that adults will have three, four, five discrete career paths in the course of their adult lives. And that's not, progression through a singular career field. It's like five distinct fields of work, right? And so that requires reskilling at each point so that you can be the best that you can be in that, in that chosen profession of yours at that time. 
in many parts of the world, uh, like Eastern Europe is a great example, where their population declines are heavily impacting the sustainability of their higher education sectors, lifelong learning is actually an opportunity to accomplish a couple of goals. It allows the universities to have more stability in what they offer. They can still offer traditional, but also continue operating while they have an incoming class of students from a lifelong learning pool instead of just a traditional pool. And it allows when there's a diminished number of workers, it allows those who've left the workforce to come back in, reskill and enter the workforce as well, especially women who left perhaps to, to marry and have children or who you know, just were living at a time where when they were traditionally aged, women didn't go to school, for instance, right? So there's all these abilities to also affect social change through lifelong learning that is really important for countries around the world. And I think that's something uh, universities can lead, lead the conversation around, lead the, the curricular development around and facilitate relationships with the labor market. Um, they are hugely respected institutions. Universities have convening power and respectability that labor market leaders do respect and, and do like. And, and this relationship can be uh, built around, we'll, we will work with you to build the curricula, curriculum that can help your workers, that can help sort of your field of study, um, which is good for everybody. It's great for the whole environment, but it's really important that institutions see themselves again as part of that ecosystem and not sort of as a silo of, you know, elite learning, which they still can be, obviously, but they exist in society as social instruments and social actors. And that role is really important. And lifelong learning really provides for that as well, provides for that expanded um, role in society. And then your point, I think, which is a really important one around um, continuing studies or genuine gen general studies being seen as sort of second class degrees, but that's something institutions have a lot of power around. You know, who teaches the courses? What are the courses offered? Who gets to sit in those courses? If they're relegated to terrible times of day and they're all adjunct faculty, then that's not an incorrect perception, is it? I mean, it means the institutions themselves are demeaning that course, right? Institutions like Columbia University, which has a school of general studies, which has the same faculty that teach the Columbia College students. I went to Columbia, so my undergraduate, it was all the same, the same faculty taught those courses. The degree comes out, it has the same respectability in the environment around it. So it really is about the institution owning that, owning continuing studies, owning the lifelong learning delivery environment and respecting it as much as they respect their traditional educational undergraduate arms or their graduate student, the graduate school arms. Yeah. Yes, thank you for, for your answer, Roberta. I, I uh, agree with you that my perception that at least in um, Latin America, uh, there's uh, this discussion if uh, universities uh, develop uh, uh, good citizens, no? people that are part in the society or uh, they uh, they train for work. Uh, I'm talking about four degree education, sure. and I think that they should do both. No, it's not. Yeah, a, why can't it be both? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. It has to be both, and uh, and if we agree about that, uh, having an area of lifelong learning that is very solid and connected with the uh, industry, business, government, and society, uh, will be a uh, very good because it's a way of uh, connecting uh, faculty also to the real needs, uh, the needs of the real world, and uh, been developing this curriculum also, uh, not only for lifelong learning, but for degree education uh, uh, connected with the needs of uh, of the society. And also mm -hmm. that, that I think uh, could be a, a, a good option. So I, I believe 
that uh, we agree on that. <laughs> I think too. I think too. You know, universities are often challenged by being so defensive about their value to society. Right? They're they're often asked to defend their position, to defend how expensive they are, to defend whatever. And I think institutions, universities especially, can just do a better job at at their messaging and saying how important, how fundamentally important they are as social instruments and social development agents for their, for their societies and their cultures. They can do better. And this is one of the streams, lifelong learning is one of the streams where they could actually illustrate that as well. I'm sorry, I interrupted something. No, no problem. So universities need to construct a better narrative of the- Yeah, I think so. I really, really do. Uh, it's yeah. a very important thought. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you, Roberta, uh, for your time and for sharing My with pleasure. us some uh, strategies and actions for universities around these issues of finance and technology and lifelong learning. Uh, well, uh, this talk has been fascinating and enjoyable for me. I enjoyed talking to you. I, I, I believe that we were having a, a coffee somewhere while we were talking and it will surely be of great value to the Institute for the Future of Education's audience. That's what I believe. Thank you, Pepe. I loved it. I had a great, great time. And yes, I think I forgot that I was speaking for an academic environment. So I hope it was what you needed. And I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thank you. We're looking forward to talking to you again. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Bye. For more information, visit observatory.tech.mx slash edutrendspodcast and ife.tech.mx. A special thanks to Tecnológico de Monterrey, the Institute for the Future of Education, and the Tech Sounds team. Tech Sounds producer, Miguel Mejia. Edutrends producers, Esteban Venegas and Christian Gijosa. Stay tuned and play Tech Sounds in your favorite podcast app for other great shows and content.